yesterday we talked about uh, just a little bit of time on idolatry and that exchanging process of exchanging the truth about God for a lie and exchanging the glory of God, worshiping created things instead. And and God just hates idolatry because he's the one who set us free. He's the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And, um, you know, the, the Egypt kind of represents that place of bondage and slavery where we've been. Not the nation of Egypt, but, you know, this how God rescues us. It's cool that God redeemed Egypt when he took Jesus to Egypt for a couple of years to save his life when he was a baby. Egyptians are very proud of that. That out of all the nations in the world, God told Joseph and Mary to take Jesus to Egypt for a while for safety. Um, but God hates idolatry. It keeps us from intimacy with the one who rescued us. And uh, and so we read, you know, throughout Scripture when he when he when he declares his hatred for idolatry, he's like, you know, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And and you know, but we do have freedom of choice. And he would be frustrated because they would choose to set their eyes on vile images and even idols that had nothing to do with them, that wasn't even from their nation. Um, And he tells them to break down the altars and smash the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. And that's the same kind of actions we need to take in our hearts and in our minds. Because idolatry is really in our heart and in our mind. And uh, many have gotten to the point where we don't even know how to blush in the presence of sin anymore. It doesn't even bother us. Uh, we talked about what it means to set up idols in our hearts. And it means that, you know, in our heart, which is kind of this place for desires and governance and passion meditation, Jesus is not Lord. And so we ignore the presence of God and um, undermines the pers- purposes of God and the, eliminates the power of God. And worst of all, it opens us up to his judgment and wrath the consequences of our sin, which is what his judgment and wrath is. Um, and so we just uh, we looked at, at that passage in Romans and just continued in it and just saw all of the, the things that came as a result of those exchanges. And, you know, if you go back to Romans 1, and we go back to the very beginning of that passage, you know, all, where it talks about all that sin and it lists everything and all those exchanges, it all starts with because they didn't give thanks to him. They didn't glorify him, so in other words, their character wasn't wasn't like his character, and they didn't give thanks to him. That's the power of of gratitude. Um, ingratitude leads to all kinds of selfish sins because um, we're not grateful for what we do have. We're just bitter about what we don't have. And uh, and our enemy, you know, although he attacks us and everything, he he makes us feel worthless. When in reality, you know, we're we're just dirty. We need to be cleaned up by the grace and love of God. And we talked about how the enemy works and what his tools are that he uses and how in every kind of these conflict situations, um, there's the perpetrator and the victim, and both have sin. The perpetrator has sin and the victim can have sin too. And we talked about, um, talked about that and how only Jesus is the only one who comes in the middle and says, I can take the sin from both sides on myself, the sins of the perpetrator and the sins of the victim. We talked about the steps that the enemy takes us through in helping us believe those lies and that forgiveness and repentance is really our only path to freedom. And then we just kind of went through those lists of what forgiveness is not and what forgiveness is and signs of unforgiveness. And I also just talked about um, apologies because I'm telling you, it seems like every time I look at the news, some company is apologizing for something. (laughs) 
But they don't change anything. They just, they're very quick to issue an apology. It's like, we regret that this happened to so-and-so. You know, but apologizing isn't a biblical concept. Nowhere in the Bible do we even really see the idea of apologizing, which is just, you know, that feeling sorry about something, but not doing anything as a result. You know, just feeling bad about it. And, uh, or even the worst kind of apology, I'm sorry that you felt that way. You know, whatever, those kinds of lame apologies. Because in the, in the Bible, it talks about forgiveness, and there's always forgiveness and an ensuing reaction or action. You know, it's like a forgiveness and a paying back of a debt, or um, forgiveness and making it right. You know, like I shared the story of the one girl who had gossiped so much about that guy, and so I challenged her with, now you need to go to all the people you gossip to and ask them for forgiveness too. And uh, because that's, that's the reality of forgiveness from a biblical perspective, and it's the only way that we become truly free. And um, uh, apologizing or, or forgiving, uh, repenting from the, in the Greek word here is, you know, it includes not just, you know, the feeling bad about something and the remorse, but it also is a changing of our mind and action. And so, um, so we talked about that a little bit. God likes to honor us in these four channels of honor. We talked about that and the steps that we go through to believe the truth. Does anybody have any questions or thoughts or comments? Appropriate jokes from yesterday, yeah. Well, um, you know, the unforgivable sin, I mean, there's a, there's a few instances, right, where, where we see that God doesn't forgive, and, and it's, um, it's, you know, if we don't forgive others, for instance, that then the Father in Heaven will not forgive us. Um, we also see, you know, if I cherish sin in my heart, God will not listen to me. Um, you know, David writes and, and um, Isaiah writes and Jeremiah writes. So, you know, cherishing sin. And, and, and that kind of theme continues to the unforgivable sin, too. You know, if we're cherishing sin in our hearts and we're living in rebellion against God and all that kind of stuff, then that's kind of how I viewed the unforgivable sin. It's like, you know, um, you know, there is there is consequence to people who who choose not to believe in God and rebel against God, and there's a long, you know, list of the judgment and wrath of God and what they'll face. And Jesus calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. So if Jesus calls it terrible, it's probably pretty bad. So you know, it's a it's a rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's a closing of our hearts to um, to His presence and a rebellion against Him. That's kind of how I've always viewed the the unforgivable sin. You know, it's the ultimate grieving of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is is very sensitive, and the ultimate grieving of it is when the Holy Spirit is prompting us and saying, you need to give your life to the Lord and all that kind of stuff, and people reject Him and harden their hearts against Him. That's the ultimate grieving against the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of how I viewed that. Yeah, I've kind of viewed it that way as being as as the second one as being um, you know when when the day of the Lord comes, it's it's too late at that point. No, 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 no. Um, in my opinion, just because the blood of Jesus is sufficient, you know. So does that make sense? Any other questions? Yep. Yeah. Hold on. Yep. Yeah.
But, you know, it's just, it's another word for carefully or intricately is another good Hebrew word there. Um, you know, so there's detail, intention, kind of to our design. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like if you're, um, if you're, if you're, I know you see in movies where they're like arming a bomb or something and they're being like super careful because they don't want to touch this wire or this wire. The whole thing's going to explode and the world's going to melt down and all the stars will cave in and everything. And so, um, so they call like Tom Cruise or somebody. Anyways, so <laughs> anyways, you, you see them. It's kind of the same idea, you know, um, just that, that there's real care and intricacy into how we're made. Yeah. We were designed with the potential for fear, obviously, because we have fear. But it, I don't—I believe it was never God's intention for us to ever um, have, be afraid of Him. You know, that wasn't His. I mean, He was hoping that wouldn't happen when He designed us. You know, the um, the the serpent didn't say, "Hey, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God." The serpent said, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's important to, you know, to complete that sentence. Because up until that point, all they knew was good. You know, and I really think that was God's desire. He's good. And so it was just, his desire was for them to know good. You know, when they chose to disobey him, um, it opened their whole eyes to evil too and and so we would know not just good, but also know evil and all the pain and everything that's associated with evil and everything. Mm-hmm. If I could, for instance, if I could do anything to keep my kids from knowing evil, I would. If somebody said, you know, jump in the lava and it'll keep your kids from ever knowing evil, I'd do it right away. I wouldn't hesitate to do that. I think that was, you know, God's desire was that we wouldn't have to know evil. About forgiveness, what's the difference between letting go of your anger and being in denial? So if you're letting go of your anger, you're, you're, you're actually expressing your anger. You know, it's not just that you're um, denying it, but you're actually expressing it before the Lord. It's, you know, it's okay to go jump in the ocean and scream and just say, God, I'm just so ticked off what would happen and just get angry about it and just give it to him. That's, that's, that's how we give him our anger, is we actually do get angry about it because we should. But we have to get angry in a way that um, we don't sin and in a way so obviously it doesn't hurt and affect other people and poison other people. And, and we need to do it fairly quickly so it doesn't give roots to bitterness and unforgiveness and all that kind of stuff. But what I see is a lot of people don't do that. They just suppress it all together. And, and, and will even say, oh, I'm not angry. And stuff. And they should be angry, <laughs> you know. And so that's the difference is that we take time to admit that we're, we are angry about something and just express it to him and just let it go. Um, because otherwise it just, it just, you know, poisons all kinds of things in our, in our spirit and in our system and how we view people. And, and eventually it's going to explode somewhere. And then usually it starts exploding in really small like minutia, like you know, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you just go ballistic or something because there's just all this unexpressed anger there, and um, and we haven't taken time to express it before the Lord and just give it to Him. 
yeah, denying it is just, you know, we're just suppressing it and suppressing it and pretending that it's not there and, um, you know, yeah. Sometimes my parents, um, when they're dealing with that, they'll, they'll lead people in actually just, you know, rethinking over a certain scenario and feeling the emotions again of that scenario. And instead of quenching them, just expressing them to the Lord. You know, uh, that's a very deep kind of counseling process that they do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when the Bible talks about fearing God, um, what is it referring to if fear is not meant to be in the character of God? Well, fear is not in the character of God. When it's talking about fear of the Lord, it's always you know, in reference to humans fearing the Lord. And I don't think it's referring to awe of God and all that stuff. I think it's abject fear. It's, it's total panic. <laughs> um, because when you see in Scripture, when, when people are experiencing the fear of the Lord, I mean, it is fear. You know, it is... And, and I've, I've experienced that a few times. Probably one of the most important times for me was when I was in West Africa and the Lord just began showing me some things um, about an organization I was working with at the time. And I just literally, I was in my hotel room and I just said, Lord, you know, I just began to repent before him on behalf of the organization. It wasn't from things that I had done, but it was from things they had done that they were responsible for. And I just began repenting before the Lord. And all of a sudden... I just was in front of the holy, omnipotent, king of kings, lord of lords, and I was literally in a fetal position on the floor in my hotel room, quaking with fear. And I said, God, you know, you are... It suddenly, it really dawned on me, he is completely justified to wipe us out. I mean, he really is, <laughs> if he wanted to. And I said, God, I, I, you know, I was just in the fear of the Lord, and I was like, Lord, you can wipe me out right now if you want. And he just kind of left me in that spot of complete panic, sweating, and in a fetal position, you know, fearful before his presence for about 15 minutes or something. And then he said, you know what, Dirk, you know, very gently, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm not going to wipe you out. He's like, I gave you the gift of life. Like, I'm not going to take that from you right now. It's a gift, you know, your life. My, my question is, you know, what are you going to do with it? And, and it was just kind of like this peace came over me, and I just, you know, crawled into bed and fell asleep and slept for like 12 hours and... Um, you know, it was just this, this piece. But I think when the Bible is talking about the fear of the Lord, it is literally the fear of the Lord because we find ourselves in front of the holy, omnipotent creator God and we recognize our own sinfulness. But then, but then God speaks to us and, and says, you know, don't be afraid. And that's where, that's where the wisdom comes from. When it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you know, the fear of the Lord is, is understanding that we are standing before him but then also, you know, we, we hear his response to us, which is, you could just call me dad. And we talked about that um, in, the second, in the second and third day, right? So it's that response. But that's what I think the fear of the Lord is, you know. And another example I gave to somebody that asked me about it um, during a break time was, you know, um, in, 1960, in the 1960s, they took prayer out of schools in the United States. And any statistician worth their salt, would look at this and press a panic button. Because from the time we took prayer out of schools in 1962, 1963, with the Supreme Court decision, from the time we took prayer out of schools, divorce has gone up over 600%. Teenage pregnancy has gone up over 800%. Teenage pregnancy between the ages of 9 and 12 has gone up 430%. 
Teenage suicides have gone up 700%. We have not, in the United States, we have not had a single year where the SAT score has gone up nationwide since the year that we took prayer out of schools. Before that, when they started the SAT test in the 1940s, before that, we were, con- we were consistently climbing in our SAT scores. The year that they took prayer out of schools, it started declining and it's never gone up since. Even with them changing the SAT score now and trying to fiddle with it to try and make it look like we're smarter, it, it still is not going up. Now, you know, was the prayer really that effective? I don't know. It, it, wasn't, a very, it wasn't a very powerful prayer or anything. It was pretty, you know nebulous prayer. But what it did do when they took it out of schools was now young people no longer have this idea like they're accountable to a higher power. You know, when we removed prayer from schools, it removed this idea that we're accountable to someone for our actions. And, uh, and we can see the effects of that in our school systems. And so we, we would, I would say, you know, we lost the fear of the Lord in our school systems in 1962. Cool. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Appropriate jokes? Okay, cool. Do you want to grab that microphone again? I think we'll get the quarter of you make up there. Awesome. Handsome. Doesn't he look good with his beard and everything, Jeremiah? (laughs) You can pay me later. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Lindsay's like... All right, you know, um, Hiran is here, and I just really want her to share with you guys. She, she's, um, she's a gifted speaker, too, and she was born in Korea and raised in Papua New Guinea. Her parents are with Wycliffe there. They've been Bible translators for over 30, 34, 33 years now. Her mom is one of the regional directors uh, in Wycliffe, and she's the first uh, regional director in the history of Wycliffe who wasn't born as an English speaker. <laughs> So that's pretty significant in a 100-year-old mission. And, uh, and also the Lord's just really done a lot in her life. We met when I was, when she was in, um, she had graduated from university and was working at a university, and my parents were professors at that university. And uh, I went to go visit my parents and saw her and um, told you about my worship experience that I had when she was leading worship. And, um, and so anyways, but she's also really gifted, has a real heart for, um, Bible reading. She's been a part of um, leading these Bible reading camps where they literally read through the entire Bible in like a weekend, 72 hours or something. What is it? In, in four days. And she also has a real passion for second generation like missionary kids from Korea who grew up in, uh, you know, TCKs they're called, third culture kids, who grew up in a different culture from the culture that they're born in, and they're living in a different culture, and all that kind of stuff. But she's a real heart for those. She's kind of one of the first generations of MKs in Korea, um, because the missionary movement started uh, about 30 years ago in Korea, 35 years ago, and she's kind of one of this um, first uh, MKs from that generation. So Hiran, why don't you come up and just share with us what the Lord's put on your heart? And I've asked her to share for a little while, and then we're going to go into our application time from yesterday. Cool? Lord, I just thank you so much for Hiran and that she's here with us, and I just thank you for what a blessing she is. And Lord, our hearts and minds and spirits are open to whatever it is that you want to say to us, Lord. 
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Just to correct you, the the missions work in Korea, it's a little longer than 30 years. It's actually, I think, about 120 years. But I was a part of a big wave of missions um, when my parents and lots and lots and lots of other families decide to just go. And that that was, and in that respect, it is true. I'm that first generation. Um, but there has been ones before me, <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, let's see. I'm just going to read from Ezekiel really quick. This is Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. And it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my, my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Um, this was a passage that the Lord gave me during my DTS. It was like my theme verse. Heart of stone to heart, you know, heart of flesh. And it, um, like Derek introduced me, I did, I was, I grew, I was born in Korea. When I was five, I moved to Papua New Guinea when my parents decided to work with Wycliffe, the Wycliffe Bible translators. And it was really funny. My dad became a Christian when he was in college. My mom became a Christian when she was very young. She was, she was the first Christian in her family and was a devout, like, early morning prayer and just, like, spiritual warfare for her family. <laughs> she, was a, she was a warrior from the beginning. My dad, um, once he accepted the Lord, um, I think he had a heart for missions, but he didn't know what it was, how to do it. And he said one time there was a group of people that came I don't even know what the setting was, and they were introducing this work called Bible translation. And he remembers sitting in there in that seminar, and when he heard about what Bible translation was, the thought that occurred to him was, hey, even I could do it. <laughs> that was the thought. I was like, hey, even little old me could do it. You know, this is a way of serving the Lord um, on the mission field. I think I could do it. I mean, that's, a thought. That's, how every, that's what he says to everybody. I say, hey, you could do it too. If I could do it, you could do it too. Not something we think about translation. But that was how the Lord spoke to him about Bible translation and eventually moving to Papua New Guinea and um, working with the people there. So 
So from age five until 18, um, we had a couple furloughs going to Korea, but mo- for the most part, I lived in Papua New Guinea. And even within Papua New Guinea, I just wanted to explain you my, you know, just the backdrop. Um, there is a big missions Wycliffe base there with, it's like an expat community. Lots of people from all over the world, a lot of them from the U.S., uh, many European countries, Australia, um, Koreans, other Asian countries. So I grew up, um, I would, my parents would spend a couple months there, but then we also had our village, which was their main focus of their work. Papua New Guinea has over 800 languages, 860 languages, and my parents worked with one of those languages. <laughs> yeah. And so that village was our village, and my parents would sort of go back and forth a couple months in the village, work with the local, our village people there and the local translators there. Um, but we didn't have electricity, didn't have running water. There's just things that you need to, you know, do the work, translate, and make publications and stuff like that. So some of it was done on this base. And so we would sort of just go months at a time, a couple months in the village, a couple months on the base, and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until I was in seventh grade, because they um, need to focus on the translation and the literacy work. When my parents would go to the village, we would actually stay on the base and go into a dorm for a couple months. And then when they come back to the base, we rejoin them and move into our house. And so back and forth like that. So that's sort of, so a majority of my life, I would say 75, 85% was on that base, but still having lived some village living, however you call it. Um, and, and it was great. I loved living there in the expat missionary community. I mean, I went, we had a big missionary kids school, lots of friends from all over the world. I was involved with music, sports. I did okay in school. I had lots of friends. And I mean, it's just a typical, like, high, like middle school, high school life. Um, when I graduated, I moved back to Korea to go to a university in Korea. And it was one of the hard, hardest times of my life. And I mean, this is a totally different story, but I spent a about two years really intensely straying from the Lord. I'm, on the surface, I did everything a good Christian girl did, but in the dark, you know, I, I was on the deep end. Um, but by the grace of God <laughs> and praying parents and friends, I mean, the Lord really intervened. And I came back to the Lord saying, hey, I can't. I can't do it without you. My life is a mess, but I do need you, God. I, it was the first time I really thought of him as my savior because he saved me out of all that. So from that point on, you know, I got involved with, you know, Bible reading group and, you know, really building relationship with other friends and growing in the Lord. And it was really, really great. And a little while after that, I took part in a program at our school called Handong Discipleship School, which is basically like a mock version of a DTS. Our school had an affiliation with YWAM, and they really wanted to bring a little bit of that for the students during break. So it was a four-week lecture 
phase where you sort of do, you know, the basics of teaching Father Heart of God, hearing the voice of God, and things like that. And then we'd go on a two-week two week outreach. So I did that, and it was so good. It was really, really good. And in the middle, we found out where we were going to go for outreach, and I was going to Cambodia. And I was like, yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm going to go to a nation I've never been to before. And one time we had this intercession um, time for our nations, and I was, you know, I was just praying, Lord, show me the heart, show me your heart for this people. And, and, and then right in the middle of it, just like, like a subtitle in a movie, it just crosses my mind. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm here praying for some people that I've never met. I'm going to spend two weeks with them. Praying, and I was sincerely on, like, sincere in my prayers for them. And I'm thinking, I've never prayed for the people of Papua New Guinea this way, ever, never. And it just like crossed my mind like a little like a text. And then I just kept praying. <laughs> I, I mean, that's where it started. It was just like a thought that came through my mind. I was like, I've never ever prayed for the Papua New Guinean people like this in my whole life. That's a little strange, right? <laughs> I didn't think it was strange, but it was strange. It, it is strange. It's something's not adding up here. So following that time, everything was great. We we went on outreach, came back, and was still growing in the Lord. And um, over the course of maybe two and a half years, you know, I finished school, um, stayed back and worked with the school chaplain's office, um, still working with students, which I really loved. And just sporadically, just really randomly, God is so gentle with you. You know, you can trust him to handle your junk, you know, and however best it's dealt with. And, I, you know, the Lord knew that this is a really, really deep, deep issue in my life and who I am. And he was just so gentle in dealing with it. So over, like, the two and a half years, he, it sort of surfaced. Here and there, like Jarek just talked about anger, and there was some anger that I never felt um, related to some incidents that had happened in my life back in Papua New Guinea, you know, stuff like that. And it would just happen here and there. And I didn't, I don't think I knew what it was. I just couldn't quite put a place finger on it. It's like something not. That's when it started. I just started thinking, something's not quite adding up. I don't know what it is, but I don't know how to deal with it. So I just let it happen. 2007 fall, I'm here in Kona to do my DTS. And I'm sure, like, this all happened to you this past couple weeks. (laughs) I was like, oh, hi. It was like meeting new people everywhere, you know, everybody asks you, oh, where are you from? It's like, oh, I'm from Korea. It's like, oh, are you Korean-American? No, I'm Korean. It's like, oh. And so they're curious, where, where does my accent come from? Because I clearly don't sound like a Korean. So I have to explain, well, I was born in Korea, but I grew up in Papua New Guinea because my parents are missionary, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, do you speak the language? Like, no, I don't. I lived there for 13 years, but I don't speak the language. See, another thing that doesn't quite add up, right? So having said that to like almost 100 people within a span of like a week, 
it's bound to surface, right? It's like, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> I mean, by that time, I going one of the struggles going back to Korea was, you know, I really had to wrestle with my my identity as a Korean because I was born a Korean, but I didn't grow up like a Korean. I grew up in a Korean family, but it was in this really diverse sort of Western culture that formed my own culture. That's why we call it a third culture kid because it's not just the parents and not just the host country, but it's a mix, a third culture that emerges from that. Um, and I'm a very typical one of those. So having struggled to, through that, I was comfortable saying I'm from Korea. I have no problem saying that. I've, I've, the Lord dealt with me, and I'm thankful that I'm Korean. I love my nation, and I love, I love the great things about the nation. There are things that are not from the Lord in our, my nation, but still I love my country, Korea. And I like I could finally say that to people. And so I was like, I'm from Korea. I'm from Korea. I'm Korea. It's like, but there's something more. So, okay, where am I? So first week, DTS. So there's definitely something surfacing there. And I, I think in my subconscious, I was just thinking about the fact that, okay, I was Korean. I grew up in Papua New Guinea 13 years, more than, more than half my, well, about half my life at that point. Um, and I don't speak the language. I don't speak the language. I mean, yes, there's 860 of them, so I don't speak all the languages, but I could at least speak one of those, right? But I didn't. Um, so a couple weeks into DTS, I remember it was a corporate week where it wasn't in our classroom, but um, we were all together in the Ohana court for that week of lecture. And I can't even remember what the lecture was. But basically what it came down to was one day in my room, it just hit me. that here the Lord gave me a beautiful nation and people as a part of my life. It wasn't just a couple of weeks, it's 13 years of my life, and I chose not to accept. I chose not to love. I don't know what moved me to make those decisions, but over the course of 13 years, I just really hardened my heart against the people of Papua New Guinea. And... It just so saddened me for the first time in my life. I was just so, so, so sad. And I say, I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry. And I repented. And I mean, what, what can you say? I'm so sorry. Can you please forgive me for not loving my people, that people I should be calling my people. I never, I chose not to. I had a good repentance, <laughs> crying <laughs> session for I think about two hours just in my bed, just by myself. And um, and then a couple of days later, it was during the Ohana court meeting too. Again, I don't remember anything about the lecture. <laughs> but I remember after that morning session that we were having a prayer time. And I really, it was... The Lord was sort of carry, taking me to those specific places where I was given, presented the option to love them, but I chose not to, like under the mango tree in our village, at this 
steps of my house when all the village kids were there. You know, the, the specific places he brought to memory, and he was walking with me in those places and I said, I forgive you. I forgive you there, and I forgive you there, and I forgive you there. And it was, it was, it was good. <laughs> it was really good. Um, and being, at that point, being dating a guy that had this incredible reconciliation ministry and stuff, I knew at some point I would have, I would have to come face to face with someone and ask, I, and I wanted to ask for forgiveness um, face to face with someone who could represent Papua New Guinea. Um, but I didn't know when that was going to be. It's, it's just tricky going to going that far. <laughs> it's like you take two days to go there, and because it's so hard to get there and expensive to get there, you don't go there. <laughs> Anyways, but, I mean, that would come. I would cross that bridge when I came to it. But as of now, the Lord forgave me. I repented, and the Lord forgave me, and it was all good. It was It was just so good. I like, wow, this is amazing. So fast forward a couple of weeks, we're finding out about our outreach locations, and it's really exciting. And we had some place, you know, Colombia, Indonesia, Cambodia. Well, I love Cambodia. I could go to Cambodia. And one of the places was Rwanda. And first, at first... When I heard Rwanda, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And when we were praying for our outreach locations, they gave us some time to think, you know, pray into it. Uh, and I started, and I thought, I, I should at least know where all these countries are. I knew where every every nation was except Rwanda. I knew, like, a general idea of where it was, but I didn't know exactly where it was. So we had a big map in front of our classroom. So I decided to go right close to the continent of Africa and find Rwanda. <laughs> so I go, and Rwanda was a small country, like I didn't know. <laughs> and as soon as I set my eyes on um, Rwanda on that map, it just like my just my heart just started beating so hard, and I couldn't hear everything else. But I just I just could not take my eyes off um, that map in Rwanda, and that, that's when I knew, okay, I think Rwanda is where I'm going. Um, so, conclusion, I end up going to Rwanda. That's where I'm going. And we were preparing for outreach. And during our outreach meeting times, they were briefing us on what it's like there. We actually had a Rwandese family here. Um, that we could meet with, and we asked them questions. They told us stuff about their nation and what to expect, what you know, what people are like there, warm climate people, and stuff like that. And the more I heard about Rwanda, I started freaking out because it sounded so much like Papua New Guinea. And I, I have to explain to you the. By the time I left Papua New Guinea, the condition of my heart, the how bad it was, was that if I were in like an unknown, not the safety of like the base or my house, but was walking in the city or something, there would literally, I would feel like a sheet of metal come over me to like desensitize myself in some ways. I mean, there were physical manifestations to the condition of my heart. 
And so as I hear these things about Papua New Guinea, I mean, Rwanda, <laughs> that was, I felt like was so much like Papua New Guinea that I really didn't like, I was really afraid. I was like, you know what? I can do bucket showers. I've done them. I grew up with bucket showers and, you know, eating food that might not be good. My problem is not that. I have a history of not loving people that I don't feel comfortable with or whatever the reason is. I have a really long history of that. And sure, I asked the Lord for forgiveness, and I was sure of that, but I just wasn't like, how does that heart of stone just, does it really change into heart of flesh? Like, how does that really happen? And I didn't know. And that really threw me off when I knew I was going to Rwanda. And, but hey, you gotta go, right? (laughs) So... So that was my biggest question. Like, God, did you really change my heart? Like, can I, how, how am I going to do it in Rwanda when I feel like it was, I don't think I could do it well. So we go, and the first week we arrive. I remember arriving in Rwanda and our base, the the base in Rwanda, we were working with them. So they came to pick us up, and we were driving from the airport to the base. And I remember thinking, and I was looking out on the streets, the men just roaming around, and and I could, and I sort of felt it come over me again, that, that sheet of metal, that desensitizing feeling come over me again. And I thought, okay, hey, you know what? 13 years of hardening heart it might not just happen overnight so give yourself time this is like the holy spirit i think it was the holy spirit speaking to me just give yourself time it might not be easy but what you're going to do is you just do your best even if it's uncomfortable it's not my nature it was natural for me to close up and shut myself down but do your best and see what see what happens and it didn't even take a week when i was there the first week we were just getting to know the community there, going out, meeting people, and just, like, sort of getting familiar with the area. And I loved it. (laughs) It was so good. (laughs) It's so easy for God to change your heart. You let him. It was so easy for God to touch mine when it was such such a wreck. In Rwanda, the Lord showed me, you know, we did ministry and all that stuff, but Rwanda was a special place for me because that's when God, it was like proof. God saying, hey, I did it. I do work in your hearts, and I did work in your heart, and I can do it in a really amazing way. Yes, it's not Papua New Guinea, but it was good enough for me. <laughs> because there was, in my mind, there was such strong correlations with these two nations, in my mind. Um, yeah, I, it was so good. I remember coming back from outreach and talking to Derek. I was like, is it okay to be crying so much after coming back from outreach? Because I, I didn't want to leave. I only thing I could say was I love my outreach and I want to go back. If I said anything more, I'd just start crying. And so I didn't really say much. Um, But, yeah, 
God's so good at what he does. He's so good at touching hearts. If you let him, just be open to that. Just let him do it. And you can trust him in how he's doing it, whether over a long time, whether in a really intense short time, however it is. Um, you can trust him with them and thank him for it. Yeah, doesn't isn't it crazy how the Lord gave me that Ezekiel passage during my DTS? <laughs> it was so good. Anyways, thanks for listening. I love that it can take, you know, years, generations even, to build up a heart of stone. Um, and God can give you a heart of flesh in seconds. It's awesome. Thank you, honey. Great. Um, we're just going to take some time to, um, to process this whole area of forgiveness. And I've often wondered, you know, God, why... Why is it when I'm teaching on the character and nature of God, <laughs> do you always um, want to bring it home to us in the area of forgiveness? And and I realized one day it was because of this. Remember in the first day when we looked at the glory of God and his revelation of his character that he gave Moses, um, that he's compassionate and gracious and all of those things. One of the aspects of his character is that he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And I found that in this um, moment where we're processing um, what we've talked about in the area of forgiveness, it is actually allowing us to just really engage with one of the really special aspects of God's character and uh, in a very real and personal, profound way. And it's an aspect of his character. It's just one of them. And he wants to really engage with us throughout the DTS um, in all of these aspects of his character. But um, today he just wants to let us get to know him a little bit in that part of who he is. And so what we're going to do is I just want you to get out a piece of paper or it might be a whole book. I don't know. (laughs) Just whatever. I remember the first time I walked through all of this, I think I filled up a yellow legal pad. But um, I just want you to ask the Lord, you know, who in my life do I need to forgive? And the reason why I tell you to ask the Lord is because you might in your own mind think about, um, think about, Uh, you know, well, obviously I need to forgive this person. But, you know, you take a moment and you ask the Lord, and the Lord brings to mind somebody that you hadn't even thought of in years, and you think, well, that's interesting. (laughs) That's why I say always ask the Lord first, because the Lord understands roots and how things are related to each other, and he might bring to mind somebody that wasn't even someone you were thinking of. Take a moment and write down their names and a summary of why or some specific memories. And uh, just take a moment to do that. And I always say start with the hardest ones. If there's a number of people that come to mind, then just start with the hardest one. Um, because once you deal with that one, it's like it's like breaking a dam. You know, the rest of them um, are come easier. And then go through your list and just speak out forgiveness over these people. Remember, there's power in the spoken word. If you really need prayer, you know, I don't... I don't go around praying for people very much because I really believe that when Jesus said the Holy Spirit is our counselor and guide, that he meant the Holy Spirit was our counselor and guide. I really think the Holy Spirit does a much better job of speaking to people than, than I could. Uh, even though I've ministered in the prophetic before and stuff like that, I, you know, prophetic ministries are okay, but um, 
You don't always have a prophetic person around, do you? <laughs> We need to learn to, to hear the Holy Spirit on our own. And, uh, and so that's the most powerful component we can have in our life, is hearing the Holy Spirit for ourselves and not always um, you know, hearing it from other people. However, if you are really struggling to forgive someone, and it's just really a struggle, and you want somebody to pray for you, just raise your hand and one of the staff or somebody will come and, and pray for you, okay? Um, but don't just stick your hand up because, you know, you want prayer. Um, just, you know, really battle and work and try and forgive. But if you're really struggling and you're like, I just need help, then just ask somebody to pray. When you're finished, then just wait. Don't disturb others. Remember we talked about in the first lecture when we looked at the wedding of Cana, God works in our hearts and in our minds on the inside, and you have no idea what God is doing in the life of the person next to you. <laughs> Um, because God works on the inside. And, uh, and so don't disturb others. Just patiently wait uh, while everybody is dealing with this. I do this too. I don't, I don't just um, teach stuff and not do it myself. And all the staff will be doing it too, and Lindsay and Marco. You know, we, like, I'm always surprised. I've been teaching this stuff for a while now, and I'm always surprised that God <laughs> still brings to mind somebody. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, will this list ever end? So, uh, you know, it's just... I, I do it too, and I just take a moment and, and, uh, and, and do this with you as well. Uh, and so we're all going to do this together. Cool? Anybody have any questions? Lord, we just commit this to you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you do speak to us, and you encourage us and strengthen us, that you do counsel us and guide us. And I just pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would just encourage us in, in um, this whole process. Speak to us, Lord. We, we admit that there are um, pockets of our life influenced by people and, and by our own um, decisions and, and everything, Lord, that are, are stone. And, Lord, we want you to turn our hearts into hearts of flesh. So, Lord, we just give you this time and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. We're not in a hurry, so just take your time and, uh, and write this down. We are going to all take it together and go burn it. So, like I said, don't do it on a computer or tablet unless you want to burn that. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> Um, cool. Everybody good? Yeah? Awesome? I, uh, I, I just want to kind of finish the week with one of my favorite um, topics to speak about, things to speak about, and uh, kind of one of my favorite stories in, in, in the Bible. I mean, other than Jesus, right? Because he's a great story. Um, But, you know, I want to talk about one of, I want to talk about a famous king in the Bible. You know, when you think in terms of famous kings in the Bible, I mean, obviously there's Jesus, so um, he's the king of kings, right? And then you think about King David, um, he's a pretty well-known king. Um, then there's, you know, Saul, he was the first king, right, um, of Israel. There's Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king with the longest name, so... Weird stuff about him, right? Remember when he was like eating grass like a cow? Now we do that at Starbucks. But, um, you know, <laughs> I remember the first time I walked into Jamba Juice and I saw they were selling grass to people and I thought, wow, uh, we've made a business out of it. But anyways, then, then there's King Herod, who's like, um, he's the king that was killing boys in the New Testament. You know, there's been a lot of attack on women in our generation, but uh, in several, a couple of times in the Bible there was an attack against boys Uh, genocide against boys when Moses was born and when Jesus was born and stuff like that. Then there's King Solomon. He was David's son. He was the wisest king 
um, in history. Um, and there's Josiah and Joash. They're some of my favorite kings because Joash became king at age seven. How awesome is that? And, um, and Josiah king at age eight. Then there's, there's one more king. There's, there's, you know, outside of the Bible, there's stuff written, right? Um, like ancient Hebrew texts and ancient Egyptian texts and um, all these ancient texts. And if you were to take all of the ancient texts written about King David, it'd be about this high. If you were to make a stack of them, it'd be about this high. Now, if you were to take all of the ancient texts written about King Solomon, you'd probably have about two or three of those stacks. And if you were to take all of the ancient texts written about this king, though, it would fill this whole room. This king has more written, and it's not Jesus. <laughs> this king has more written about him. As a matter of fact, this king has more written about him than all of the other kings in the Old Testament put together. Isn't that crazy? What's even crazier is that in the Bible, <laughs> there's only one chapter dedicated to this king. Now, why would that be? Why would there be like so much extra-biblical texts, we call them, so many extra-biblical texts written about this king where he could fill the whole room with all of the ancient documents written about him. And in our Bibles, there is like one, not even very long, chapter about him. It's King Uzziah. Now, King Uzziah was an amazing king. He invented a whole bunch of stuff, which is why there's so much written about him. He was the one who invented these large um, catapults that would throw rocks against walls. You saw, you saw them in Lord of the Rings or something, right? These are, this, is, this was the invention of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was the first one who invented automatic machine guns. Isn't that crazy? He invented these wheels that you would turn, and they would fire arrows at people, little short arrows like this. And he would put them up on the corner Uh, the corners of the walls in Jerusalem, and they could literally mow down an entire army in minutes as they turned these huge cranks and it just go... And literally just mow down the entire army. Matter of fact, they just this isn't King Uzziah here, but these, <laughs> this is his invention. They just featured it on the Discovery Channel just a few weeks ago uh, because he was just so famous for all of his military inventions. He was also... Tremendous in his inventions of agriculture stuff. Before King Uzziah, they would plant like crops and stuff around trees, you know, kind of in these clearings in the forest. And King Uzziah looked at that and he said, why are we doing this? Why don't we just mow the forest down and plant crops just so they're all very close to the city of Jerusalem? So he was the first one who actually um, had these fields where they just cleared out massive parts of land. And as a result, is um, you know, Jerusalem and Israel was just abounding with nutrition and food and able to um, create all kinds of things with their food. There's literally tons of ancient sculptures and wall artifacts and stuff like that that depict stories about the, the amazing technological leaps forward that King Uzziah did. Now, why is there only one chapter about this guy? Let's, let's read the chapter because I think there's an important message in this chapter that if we're not careful... Um, we, we can miss it, and yet I think it's absolutely critical for our lives, and I want to look at it. Here's a story in Second Chronicles 26. This is all there is. It says the subtitle is Uzziah, King of Judah. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, 
and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elat and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecholia. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. Now, remember, Zechariah, we actually have a book in our Bible after Zechariah, because he was a prophet. It's the same Zechariah. And Zechariah would disciple Uzziah in the fear of the Lord. Now, we've talked about, you know, the fear of the Lord and what that means and all that. And, and Zechariah wouldn't tell King Uzziah what decisions to make, but he would disciple him in the fear of the Lord because he knew if he discipled King Uzziah in the fear of the Lord, then he'll make the right decisions. This also, by the way, is the relationship that church should have with the government. You know, the church should be discipling the government in the fear of the Lord. We should be discipling our rulers in the fear of the Lord. That is our job as church. You know, the whole thing about separation of church and state was intended to keep the government out of church, but certainly not to keep God out of the government. And, uh, and so he sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. Now, here's something we read that you should have taped to all of your mirrors on little yellow sticky notes, and you should have it imprinted on the memory banks of your head. This is something that we should all know and memorize. Say it with me. Read this with me. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Say it again. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. One more time. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towers near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gurbaal, against the Munites. The Ammonites, who were like his enemies, brought tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. War is unfortunate and ugly, but sometimes necessary. Because remember, there are people who love darkness rather than light. And I think it's interesting that it says here that, you know, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and God gave him success. And then the very next sentence, he went to war. Because there is a time to go to war when, uh, as particularly when our nations are being attacked, because governments have a responsibility to protect our nations. As individuals, we need to forgive those that are hurting our nations, but We also need to recognize that government has a responsibility to protect our nations. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock and foothills in the plains. Yeah, we talked about this. He had people working in his fields and vineyards in the hills and the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. You know, we read through this, we don't understand that every single sentence in here is groundbreaking. <laughs> Nobody had ever had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions before. It was more like, you know, they all kind of went, ran and fought as a clump of people, right? He actually had divisions, he had, you know... He had bowsmen, he had infantry, he had cavalry, he had all these like divisions, um, cavalry, not cavalry. He had, um, he had divisions that were ready to go fight and he had all these divided up. These are all groundbreaking things under King Uzziah. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. 
That's pretty amazing that they that he had this amount of people trained for war. That's incredible because usually it was like you know you'd go and you'd see Schmeckel and you'd say hey Schmeckel we're going to go fight you know he'd go and get his kitchen knife and Rawr! off he'd go to you know, join in the fight. Uh, these weren't just you know like just you know people who grabbed their kitchen knife went to go fight. These are people who were actually trained for war. And as a matter of fact, he was so wealthy and powerful. We read that he provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices. We just um, showed pictures of this. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses, so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame became um, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. <coughs> Those are the things we were just talking about. There's something that really bothers me in that last sentence, though, isn't there? Not that he was greatly helped, because I think every every leader needs great help. <laughs> um, do everything you can to help your staff and leadership in this DTS. Um, they're amazing people. You guys have an awesome staff here and such great leaders. I, and, I, and I don't just say that. I've been in some disastrous situations. I've even shared one of those with the staff. They can. T- I mean, I've been in some pretty crazy situations. You guys have an amazing... Uh, staff here and leaders, and uh, you just—it's a perfect place for you guys. Um, you're really blessed here. But it says he was greatly helped. You know that's good. But then there's that word until, and you start getting a bad feeling here. It's kind of like uh oh, until he became powerful, and you know you kind of almost dread going on because you're like, wait a minute, it's been so good up until now. <laughs> Discipled in the fear of the Lord, tremendous success, and you know, this big long list of stuff that could cover, you know, fill up this entire room with all of his achievements. And then you get to that part, greatly helped until he became powerful, and you start thinking, maybe this is why there's only one chapter about King Uzziah. After King Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Listen, this was not the job of the king. (laughs) The king was trying to take over the duty of a priest. It was the priest's job to burn the incense. He wasn't anointed. He didn't come from Aaron's family lineage. He wasn't a Levite. He um, He wasn't anointed for this. And he goes into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Can you imagine the courage that it took for 80 priests to go and confront the great King Uzziah. I'm telling you, I, I feel like our generation will be called, you know, our generation, all who are alive in this season of time, will be called to confront. To confront the evils of our time, to confront to defend, really, the, the word of the Lord and confront people with truth. To even defend God Himself. You know, this is a watershed moment. I feel, you know, brothers and sisters, 
that we're going to be called to confront the evil of our times and this corruption of God's word that's going on. The rampant interference of ungodly people into um, our worshiping God. And these men confronted the great King Uzziah. Uzziah, who had the censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging, remember we talked about rage, he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. The Lord had afflicted him. That's interesting. With leprosy. What a dramatic story. What a moment. The great king Uzziah struck with leprosy. Why? Because the very thing in which he had been discipled in by Zechariah, the fear of the Lord, is the very thing that he lost. And in his pride and arrogance, he showed no fear of the Lord. He was the great king and mighty Uzziah. How dare these religious leaders confront him? He's King Uzziah. Don't they know who he is? There's rooms filled with literature about how amazing he is. It's so very sad. We go on to read that King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, not even in the palace anymore. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. You have to understand what that means. Banned from the temple of the Lord means he couldn't offer sacrifices anymore. And if you can't offer sacrifices anymore, how do you know whether or not God will forgive you? Because forgiveness of sins was only accompanied by sacrifice. And he could only do sacrifices in the temple. So when he's banned from the temple, he's banned from sacrifices, he's banned from seeking the Lord for forgiveness. He lived in a in this separate house. And Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings, for people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. That's the great legacy of King Uzziah from God's perspective. One chapter in the Bible, and people would walk past his gravesite, and they would comment, and they'd say, he had leprosy. Leprosy, this infectious disease that causes severe disfiguring skin sores and nerve damage in the arms and legs. It was ugly. It was painful. People were terrified of it. and Like I said yesterday, it's also a disease that seems to parallel sin a lot in the Bible. And there you have it. The great King Uzziah. As long as he sought the Lord, he had success. He was discipled in the fear of the Lord, which we know is the beginning of wisdom, but for some reason, he stopped seeking the Lord and became proud. How does that happen? Did Uzziah just wake up one morning and suddenly he was proud? Did he just wake up and suddenly discover that pride had infiltrated his life? No. Let me tell you. Pride creeps in like a slow-moving cancer. 
And it begins with one small decision. Oh, I don't need to seek the Lord about this. I know the right decision. I don't need to ask the Lord. I don't need to spend time with God today. I have a lot to do. And those small decisions keep going. And before we know it, we're not seeking God at all for anything in our lives. We're not spending any time with God. We who have direct access to the wisdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords can, can find ourselves in a place where we spend so little time with Him, no wonder we keep having problems throughout our day. We realize that suddenly that it's been a long time since we've spent quality time with God. And if we're in leadership, you know, are we even seeking Him as leaders or leadership teams or are we even just on our faces before God asking Him for His wisdom? I hope we are. I know I need to be, because that's how pride grows. And before you know it, we're in a place where we're set up for a completely disastrous story. One that ends like Uzziah's. There's another part to this story, though. You know, just imagine if you were related to the great king Uzziah. Maybe you're his brother or his sister or you know, his cousin or something. And everybody loves you. Everybody would be your friend because, you know, you're, you're related to King Uzziah and people would pull you aside and they'd tell you, man, you're, you know, your cousin is just awesome. He's just doing such amazing things. And, you know, they'd come to your parties because the whole neighborhood would show up because, you know, you're King Uzziah's cousin and everywhere you go, you're famous because you're King Uzziah's cousin. You get things given to you that you don't even have to pay for just because you're related to King Uzziah. And when you walk down the street, You know, people would whisper about you. There is King Uzziah's cousin. Is that, that's King Uzziah's cousin? Wow. And, you know, they'd run and get selfies with you. (laughs) You walk into a restaurant and immediately you're seated at the best table and you're proud of King Uzziah. I mean, why wouldn't you be? He's, He's a tremendous person. He's doing a great job. You're excited. You're proud of how he's represented the nation. You're proud of how he's represented the community and your family. You have direct access to him. Even former enemies are paying tribute to him. I mean, who would have thought? And then the news starts to trickle out. The great king has leprosy. And the story of how he got it begins to surface. And all kinds of rumors go around and ugly lies. And in your heart, you know the truth is just as bad raging in the temple and confronted by a group of courageous priests and God Himself afflicting the great king with leprosy. Instead of walking down the middle of the streets now, you kind of sneak down alleyways in the dark of night. People stare at you and they whisper, piling on the shame. And you're angry with Uzziah. How could he do something so stupid? You're embarrassed, you're disappointed, it's like a nightmare. Some days you wake up forgetting that it had happened, but then by the time you brush your teeth and get your coffee, you remember. As the memories start pouring back in, you realize what had happened and really happened. And sadness just kind of spreads over you like a dark blanket and words seem to fail you when people ask you difficult questions. You know what's amazing is we actually have a book in the Bible written by King Uzziah's cousin. Did you know that? Written by his first cousin. And now maybe the words of this sixth chapter of the book make more sense to us. Maybe they're a little more colorful to us now that we know the background. 
Because the great King Uzziah's cousin was filled with shame and sorrow and embarrassment and disappointment. And then he hears the news that the king has died. What a tragic ending to his cousin's life. What a waste. Such a great king and such an upsetting ending to his life. And he pens the words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Isn't that just like God in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our disappointment, in our lowest points when we're in sorrow and our family is in sorrow, when we're just so embarrassed and discouraged and lost, God just allows Himself to be seen He steps in and He says, I'm the light in the darkness. You're not alone. He opens Himself up to us. It's like Adam after he sinned and God says, Adam, where are you? Or Peter out there weeping bitterly. And when the resurrection happens, the angels say, go tell His disciples that He has risen, especially Peter. This is the grace of God to Isaiah that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. And Isaiah goes on to write, And says, above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and two they were flying and calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook, and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you imagine, here you are, related to the leprous king, And now you're standing in front of the holy, almighty God. And Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now you know what's going through his head. He's thinking, I'm I'm King Uzziah's cousin. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, he writes, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. We identify with Isaiah here. We understand that feeling of guilt and shame, that feeling of knowing we're people of unclean lips and we come from a people of unclean lips and we can't pretend when we're standing in front of our holy God. He knows it all. We stand transparently before him. But then the seraphim flew to him and touched his lips, says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And it's that moment of grace that we just experienced standing around the fire. The grace of God on us and the grace of God that we can extend to others. And only after this forgiveness does young Isaiah hear the voice of God. saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he responds, Here am I, send me. Isaiah excited, My God, if you can still use me, if you can, after all that, here I am. If it wasn't for this chapter, my dear friends, I'd be so disappointed about Uzziah. It'd be so discouraging. Where is the redemptive part of the King Uzziah's story? 
But here it is. This announcement flows to the ears of Isaiah. Your guilt is wiped away. Like with the blood of Jesus, our guilt is wiped away. Our sin atoned for. And we've been forgiven. I still believe, don't you? That that question God asked Isaiah is still reverberating before the throne of God. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? You might be sitting there thinking, well, Derek, (laughs) we've gone. (laughs) I know. You have. You've responded to the voice of the Lord and you've left houses and land and family and friends and you've come to this beautiful island of Hawaii. Come to a foreign land. You've said, yes, Lord, here I am. You've sacrificed something to be here. But here's the thing. What would we learn from Uzziah? What would be the lesson from that one chapter on King Uzziah's life? It has got to be this. Seek God. Seek Him. I actually believe that for all of us, you know, I really believe this, the best days are ahead of us. I really believe that deep in our soul, in my soul, that the best day is coming, but it only comes as we seek the Lord. As we seek Him, He'll give us success. Lean into Him. Get His wisdom. Spend time with Him. Talk to Him. Listen to His voice. Hear Him. Follow Him. Have marriages that seek God. Have families that seek God. Teach your children to seek God and your grandchildren someday to seek God. The greatest thing that we can pass on. Your friends to seek God. Urge your roommates, your outreach teams to seek the Lord. And in your own life, you don't have to struggle over massive decisions. You can just sit there and get God's wisdom. Wouldn't it be a tragic waste To be where we are now, having left houses and land, especially if it's here in obedience to His voice, to one day realize we'd allowed pride to creep in and forgotten to keep seeking God. This is the last thing I want to leave you with. May our response to God be like that of Isaiah. And may our life choices be like the early days of Uzziah. May we stand like Isaiah did and say, Here am I, send me, Lord. And may we learn from the early time of King Uzziah, there's so many things God wants to do through you, inventing stuff, pioneering stuff. But in order for us to do that, we have to post this in places where our eyes go. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. This needs to be a theme for us. As long as we just pursue the character and nature of God, pursue who he is and seek him, God will give success. Success doesn't come from people. Success is is orchestrated and planned and divined by God Himself as we seek Him. I just want to pray for you guys. Lord, I thank You so much for this beautiful GTS. Thank You for everybody who was attracted to the word engage. <laughs> Lord, that that's something they want to do with You. They want to partner with You. They want to work together with you. They want, to, they want to be influenced by you. They want to be led by you, Lord. 
pray that as they seek you, not just these next three months or six months, but for the rest of their life, that you would just clearly lead them, not in just telling them what to do, but lead them in the beauty of intimate relationship with you. And that as they seek you, God, they'll be the most successful people. Not in the world's eyes necessarily, but Lord, when they stand before your throne, they'll be able to say, God, I did everything you asked me to do. And it's great to see you because we've known each other for so long. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.